Good morning, Faith. It's good to see Faith together this morning. I'm Jeff Dion, and I'm here this morning to read today's scripture passage for you. Uh, Last week, we read about the resurrection and how Jesus appeared to Mary and the disciples. This week, our text is John 21. Starting in verse 1, we read, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thank you, Jeff. I I know it's normally our practice after somebody reads to comment on them or compliment them or something, but it was Jeff. I'm not going to do that. No, just kidding. No, actually, Jeff is such a good communicator. Honestly, he slipped in at the very beginning. I don't know if you caught it, but I know Jeff. I've known Jeff for a long, long time, and this was by intention, wasn't it? It's good to see faith together, he says, because he knows that's the theme of 2022 for our church is that faith would be together. So, Jeff, you're just so good at that, you wily little coyote, you. (laughs) I should do that more often. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to have a little bit of a pause after a very busy and full, uh, in a lot of ways, Easter Sunday. And Resurrection Sunday for so many churches is a giant celebration, and we see so many of our friends and family from from away come and stay with us, and then people that haven't been to church for a while find their way back, or the ones that have intentions of staying, you know, don't always stick it out. There's all that kind of roller coaster ride that happens, and and it's hard not to, even though around here we didn't necessarily try to go out of our way to make a very programmatic, big, giant Sunday, but it's hard not to get swept up in the emotion of it because of all that it represents. 
But it's also exciting to see so many people and to think, you know, oh, is, this, is this a sign of the church's success based on how full the room is? All those kinds of things. And then inevitably, after the big event is sort of the feeling of letdown. Things calm down a little bit or we go back to seeing our same old faces. You know, it just gets normal. It gets, it kind of levels off a little bit. And, and it, I get that same way when I watch movies, these giant epics, you know, these, 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 uh, stories. I'm picturing one. I can't even think of the title of it right now, but Dwayne the Rock Johnson is saving the world, of course, right? Cause he would do no less. And at the same time, he's mending his estranged family. And there's some, I forget what the disaster is, some tidal wave coming or something like that, right? And it's so over the top. There's these moments in the movie where the speedboat they're on just makes it through before a giant tower falls all over them and all these kinds of, it's amazing. It's this great climactic adventure. And then, of course, the movie comes to an end after he saves the day and his family and everything. But I want to know what they do next Tuesday. Like, I want to know when does it become normal for that family, after all they've seen, to go back to eating pancakes together? We're reading the newspaper. Does the newspaper even still exist? And it's that kind of how, how do they deal with the normal after what they've witnessed is so transformative, so monumental, is so mind-blowing? But see, Hollywood's good for us, right? They, the thing that happens after that major event is the credits roll. So we don't have to watch normal life come back for Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That would be hard for us to watch. I don't want to see him eating pancakes on a Tuesday morning. I want to see him saving the world. And this is kind of where we find ourselves with John 21. The most climactic event in all of human history has just taken place. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has happened and and his followers have seen the proof of it because not only were they confronted with an empty tomb, but they saw him face to face and he said, it worked. We did it. I'm back. And so now there's this energy, there's this momentum and that's where Hollywood would roll the credits. You see it all buttoned up. It came together as this nice little package and now we can all live happily ever after. That's where it would have ended if Hollywood were producing it in John chapter 20. But John has a particular point to make under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So he continues writing and gives us chapter 21, which we will look at in Lord willing, three different pieces today included over the next couple of weeks before we close out the gospel of John. And what we're seeing is he is giving us a view of the emotional tones of the whole roller coaster ride of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's bringing us into some of the details of the people involved so we can kind of see it through their eyes, go through it through their lives, and, and, and enter it vicariously, I guess. And, um, it, but what we're going to see in this passage, I think, is that most of the moments in our lives are not going to be the epic adventure that the cameras would capture. That most of our lives are the Tuesday mornings, are we having pancakes or cereal this morning kind of thing. That's where we live. It, and very rarely does the snapshot of our life get captured in such an epic kind of way. Most of our lives are lived in the mundane. It's it's after John chapter 20, after we've witnessed the resurrection, after we believe it to be true, what do we do next? And the life of the Christ follower in the Lord's eyes is just as valuable in those mundane moments as it is in all the big epic adventures. 
It isn't to say that some of us aren't going through or haven't been through something that is either cataclysmic or very um, eventful or adventurous in our lives. It's just that the Lord sees our lives as valuable in those moments and in the valleys and in the quieter moments as well. And I think this is setting the stage for us as we look into the lives of the disciples post-resurrected Jesus. The part that we don't have for us in terms of background in uh, John 21 is found for us in Matthew 28:16, where the other gospel writer tells us that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So John isn't covering this portion of, of information, which says that Jesus had said, go to this mountain and I will catch up with you when I'm ready. We don't know how specific he was about when he would be there. We don't know what kind of instructions or anticipation these guys had. But so much has happened now. They're starting to anticipate Jesus' return because they've seen him already. And they're thinking, we get to see him again. He's going to be with us for a little bit longer before he finally ascends to his father. And then some have speculated that the mountain that he directed him to, because it was right next to the Sea of Galilee, and it's where everything started with the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus like, meet me back where it all began, for it to all come full circle, and it's quite possible. But what we saw from our text in verse 3 is that these guys had waited for a while and couldn't sit still any longer, particularly, you guessed it, Simon Peter, who says, I can't sit around anymore, I'm going fishing. So they said, because he's still a natural leader, all right, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. What we're going to see is I'm going to extract just a a few simple points from this passage today. We're not going to spend as much time as we normally would or look under every rock and come up with a lot of the sort of interesting details and stuff. This is just a very simple, straightforward narrative. And I think some of the application points we can skim right off the top. And the first is that what Peter and the disciples are, are helping us see is that our work has no direction without Jesus in it. In verse 4, it says that just as the day was breaking, then Jesus is standing on the shore. We'd seen from the text that it was about 100 yards away. They're off in the distance. And yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And so Jesus is yelling out to them. He's saying, hey, guys, that's that's the phrase here. Children is not my little children. Some of the affectionate terms he's used in the past. He's kind of masking himself again. And he's also expressing a little bit of like, Something's changed in the relationship here. You were supposed to be here and now you're there. Hey, dudes, guys, did you catch anything yet? They answered him, no, we haven't. Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that, because this happens so much in scripture, that God keeps asking questions he already knows the answer to? When I was in um, Bible college, we had a some kind of a preaching class or something. I, yes, I did take a preaching class. That's... You don't need to be mean about it. And the professor had said, um, he, he had taken a passage of Genesis and he said, I want you each to take a verse and you're going to take 10 minutes and you're going to write a message. I want you to preach a two minute sermon on a verse. And so I, uh, fortunately, I think got the, the verse where God is asking Adam, where are you? And I was looking at that going, what a weird question. Is God blind all of a sudden? 
You know, does, does God not know that Adam's hiding behind that bush because he's ashamed because he's naked and everything's changed because they sinned and disobey? Like, how does God not know? But it occurred to me for the first time ever because that professor said, look at this verse, that God was asking the most obvious question, not for his own benefit, but for Adam's. When he said, Adam, where are you? I won that competition, by the way. Did I mention that? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. I only had a few minutes, so I couldn't mess it up too bad. But that that's what it occurred to me, is that God was asking the most obvious question so that Adam would have to come to terms with, like, why am I hiding? Why did I run? Did, did he hear in God's tone of voice that he was angry with him or that he longed for him? What was it? But God asked the question anyway. Jesus is is shouting from the shoreline. He's like, hey, guys, so how'd it work out for you? Catch anything? Now, it's pretty amazing for fishermen to be honest about their catch, right? So if they had brought in a bunch, they might lie and say, oh, no, we didn't catch anything because they don't want to reveal their secret spot. Or they might just be embarrassed to say, no, we've worked all night and we didn't catch. But these guys did the right thing and they just fessed up and said nothing. We've got nothing. The, the, what we've discovered is that the first step towards healing or, or any kind of relational restoration or how we approach recovery from substance abuse, any of those things, isn't it to just simply admit that I've got a problem? Isn't it simply to admit that I failed or what we would say biblically that even, uh, that, uh, that I get to admit that I'm a sinner? And and so many of our admissions or our confessions are more like veiled sort of let me off the hook kind of statement. I'm sorry that I wasn't perfect. I'm sorry that you got offended or anything. But these guys, instead of saying, uh, uh, no, but you know, the weather wasn't right. They just said, no, we didn't. We went out in our own strength, came up with our own plan, our own devices, and we blew it. They didn't even really know who they were talking to, but they were so defeated. They had no recourse, but to just say, we caught nothing. And they fessed up. Imagine what would change in our lives. Imagine what would change in our relationships. Most importantly, our relationship to God. If we started from a place of just honest, humble, yes, you caught me confession. I've got nowhere to hide. If if I come in a little closer, he's going to see that the boat is empty. So why would I lie about it? And this is the point, right? God always sees whether or not we're being honest. He's not asking the questions for his own information. He's asking him for us to be able to respond honestly and to see the reality or the severity of our situation. So unbeknownst to them, these guys clearly have been walking with Jesus for several years as they start to respond in a lot of the right ways. They We don't know whether or not kind of disobedience put them out on the sea? What if they were sitting around going, well, we can't wait around for him, you know, forever to come. We're going to go out and do our own thing anyway. Some have speculated that Peter's statement of, um, well, I'm going fishing means I'm returning to my career. I'm not doing this whole following Jesus thing anymore. I don't really see that in the passage. I don't see that from Peter's restoration. I don't see that from his response as we're going to see here in a bit. But it could just be, I can't sit around and do nothing. I got to do something. And I know fishing. So I'm going to go do that. But then they find out, I don't really know as much as I thought I did. 
It was time for Peter, for the disciples, for the fishermen, the experts to trust the unlimited knowledge of Jesus. So he says to them, Jesus says in verse six, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find the same. And they're like, oh, we didn't think of that. We thought you just fish on the other side and the fish seem to know where the boundary is under the boat. They never go to that side. You know, humanity would look at this and say, well, why would they listen to him? Jesus was a carpenter. He wasn't a fisherman. His area of expertise didn't go below the surface of the water. These guys knew what they were doing. But when you're the creator of the entire environment, and when you're directing the fish underneath the water, when you're directing creation to obey you as it does, then your expertise goes into every walk of life. And and I want us to hear this now because these guys had every excuse they could have used because they were the experts. They were the ones that had just spent hours doing the same thing over and over and over again, tediously to no avail. They could have easily just said, uh, not this time, not doing it. But experience, our own human wisdom is no excuse, is never an excuse for disobedience. Remember that the next time the Lord challenges you to do the same thing over and you're like, but it's never worked out for me. And he says, but it's still right to do. We talk to parents all the time about the fact where they said, we don't know what to do to change the behavior of the kid. It's like, well, you're starting from the wrong place. We don't just do the things that work. We do the things that are right. Whether it works or not is a lot of times up to the kid to follow through and to see and to be correctable. So much of our approach is to say, I just want to know what's going to produce the results that I want. But it's God, God's the one who's directing this. And our experience is no excuse to disobey those commands. What we'll find, those of you that are at places of work or trying to manage your household or operate in uh, these family relationships and friendships and every aspect of life, what you'll find is that godly principles always have a place. They apply in every aspect. I don't care if you're doing nuclear science or if you're doing dishwashing. Godly principles are are welcome and applicable in every facet of life. And Jesus is demonstrating this. I'm no fisherman, but if you drop the net over there, I'm telling you, you'll get the results that you want. And so they wisely decide to follow the unlimited counsel of Jesus. Leading to our second point, that our work has no power without Jesus. You know what happens? You you heard it already from Jeff. Verse 6 again says, So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Somebody went and counted the quantity. It was 153 fish. You can make for yourself out of that what you will, but somebody went and counted the fish, and it says they were large fish. So there's a pretty great catch. And what they're seeing is that as Jesus is saying, no, go over here and do this, that all of a sudden they're going, wait a second, this is, this is power. Something sounds familiar. I recognize this power. I can't see his face from a distance, but this seems familiar to me. There's only one person that could tell you, just drop it on the other side and it would work this way. When Jesus wants to produce in our life the things that he has set out to do, the best thing that you and I can do is to sit back and receive it. 
I'm not saying be lazy, but don't get in the mid- middle of it and just so, oh, well, I gotta drop, I gotta do this again, I gotta fish over here. He simply said, I've got something for you to reap on the other side, just drop the net. And they just said, alright. I don't know why. It's a mystery to me from the text that it wasn't clear to them it was Jesus yet. What would make them want to do this? But again, they had learned some things. Perhaps their minds were open up to say, we can't really explain everything that we ever witness in life. We've been following Jesus for far too long to start questioning everyone's judgment and wisdom. There might be something to this. What do we get to lose? Let's do it again. And they drop the nets. Now, lest we think that what Jesus was trying to do is to build for them this major hall so that they could cash in at the end of the day, that he was trying to somehow um, put his stamp of approval on their decision to go back and go to, go to fishing. We have to look at this a little bit deeper, that Jesus had already commissioned them. We, saw, we see this back in, in Mark 1, that he said, you follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Jesus hasn't changed his tune on that. He hasn't changed the direction for those guys. So he has come and he's performed this miracle to strengthen that calling in them. In 2022, we would look at this and some preacher would get up and you say, so if you just do what Jesus tells you to do, you'll haul in a net of fish that you won't be able to contain. And then I'll let you define what your net of fish is. What's your big craving? What's your big ask? What's your want in life? If you just do what he says, you go about it the way he says to do it, he's going to make it explode. That would be the popular way to handle this passage. But we have to remember the context says that Jesus had already called them to be fishers of men. So he's making a bigger point here. This was a spiritual demonstration, not just a physical one. Of course, he could have made 153 fish show up anytime they dropped the nets in. Remember when we were going through John 16 and we said what it really meant to pray in Jesus name meant to pray in likeness to him in the thing or towards the things that, you know, he would um, he would approve of. And that praying in his name and walking in his name is 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 praying for the things that bring glory to God. And he'll answer that prayer every time. This is a demonstration of Jesus saying, I told you, if you stick with my plan, if you stick with my calling, you stick with my instruction, I'm going to make the results overflow and you won't be able to contain them. You and I, we are caught up in a lot of things. We are busy doing a lot of different things. We, we do a lot of noble things. We do a lot of helpful things. We do a lot of recreational things. We do some destructive things as well as we live out this life. But you and I are here to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus Christ. And that is the calling placed on everybody who has received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Primarily, we are not here to build financial portfolios. We're not here to even um, improve our family legacies. We're not here to build lasting memories through the things that we do together. All of those things can be godly and they can be God honoring, but they are simply byproducts of faithfully living out our calling to make followers of Jesus Christ while we are here. All of those things become the atmosphere in which we are trying to produce other people who will follow Jesus Christ. 
And this is why Jesus would have blessed the efforts of these men to say, it's still with me. Your results, your abundance, your reward is still with me. Don't walk away from what I called you from before. Don't walk away from what I empowered you to do before. Peter, of course, so often has just the right reaction or at least the relatable one. But I think he shows us that that when we see the unhindered results that Jesus provides and we start to express in kind, we respond to that in kind with this unhindered worship that Jesus deserves. In verse 7, that that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the writer, John, said to Peter, Duh, it's the Lord. How did we miss this? Well, how did we know it? Well, because he just filled our net of fish. So when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he'd stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea because that's what Peter does. Mr. Impulsive. Don't you want to wait? We could row. Nope. No time. I actually hadn't think, thought of this, but it reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump when Forrest Gump is so excited to see Lieutenant Dan and he's on his shrimp and boat. And the shrimp and boats going by and Lieutenant Dan's on the dock just waving and Forrest Gump's like just so excited. He just jumps in. The boat just goes crashing through a bunch of docks. That's Peter. Looking back, that's my boat. (laughs) Sorry. Concentration problems this week. What John had realized when he said it's the Lord, what Peter was starting to realize when he heard John say it's the Lord is that the difference between success and, 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 and failure for them or the difference between their weakness and this amazing strength that had been demonstrated by God, the distance between those two realizations was seven and a half feet was the width of that boat. Over here represents all of our best efforts that come up uh, empty, that come up dry. And over here represents us just obeying the command of the Lord and then producing results that we can't even contain. (laughs) There's a handful of people in this room that want me just to admit to you that I've had a concussion this week and I'm still not over it. It's true. Doing my best. Apparently, I'm missing my mouth. I wasn't going to say anything, but when I just dribbled all my wife's like, would you just tell them you've got an issue? Peter has to respond in the same way. He can't contain himself. He just lunges into the water. And I wonder how much of his thoughts go back to a scene that that took place in Luke chapter 5. We didn't read it, but I'm going to go back and, and read this for us here. In Luke 5, beginning in verse 1, this is what happened before. You're going to think this is just a repeat of the story that we just read in John 21, but it's not. You'll hear the, the setup to this puts us way back at the beginning. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, Jesus, had asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, he says, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now Simon starts to push push against him because he's the expert. And he says, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking again. Is that, is this what, was this what Peter's thinking about as he's swimming towards Jesus? He's done it again. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them and they came and filled both the boats and they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he was just undone. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, which had to have been a very scary situation. These guys, he just entered their area of expertise and did the thing that they've never been able to pull off before. So he's saying, don't freak out. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do you see the cyclical nature of this miracle that Jesus is doing with them? Let's go back to where it all started. Let me remind you of how I called you in the first place. But even with all of that, there's still a a deeper point to be made here. And that is the reason that we emphasize so much the confession of our sins here at faith and so many other Bible believing churches. The reason why we harp so much on be, be confessional in your life, offer to the Lord, your failures, your weaknesses, name them, count them out, admit to them when they happen. The reason why we do that is because it positions us to best see how gracious And great Jesus truly is. It's not because we're downers. It's not because we're trying to make us all feel bad. It's because we want us to to see the greatness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way, which I, I didn't even realize we would be singing about this in one of our songs this morning. That we have this treasure in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure. What treasure? This glory of God, this power of God, this strength, the might of God. We have this treasure in, in fragile clay pots, that's us, in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is how Hughes says this. He, he says, it's in the breaking of these clay vessels, our failures, that the riches of God are exposed for all to see. It's primarily our failures that create in us a poverty of spirit and then, and then, and thus make us fit receptacles For the blessings of the kingdom of God. That is why, and then quoting another author, he says, that's why Christianity from Golgotha onwards, that's the place of Jesus' crucifixion. That's why Christianity has been the sanctification of failure. It's good for us to admit we didn't catch anything. It's good for us to admit that our efforts uh, took us out into the wrong places or at the wrong times or anything like that. Why? Because then Jesus can come and rescue us and provide for us and say, it was always in me to begin with. And then lastly, this whole thing demonstrates that our work has no lasting reward without Jesus. Let's jump back in verse 9 of our text. When they'd got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore by himself. Let's just say that parenthetically. And I thought it was big of John to admit that because last time he was saying he could outrun him. Remember? He said, Peter is the slow one. I beat him to the tomb first. Now he's at least saying, Peter's pretty strong dude. He took that net by himself and 
He was pretty hopped up. He gets to see the Lord again. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's a lot to this. We could do an entire sermon just on this little interaction, this fish breakfast that Jesus is making for these men who have been out doing their own thing and their own strength to, for no results for the entire evening. And to simply be welcomed ashore with this wonderful breakfast, which I'm sure was cooked perfectly. Can we just assume? But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, bring the fish that you just caught. We all know who's responsible for that catch. Those guys didn't do anything other than they hauled in where Jesus said to drop the net. This, this to me, I think, depicts the graciousness of the God that we serve, is that the little bit that we bring, the stuff that if we're being uh, sincere about, we can't boast about, we can't brag about, all the good stuff that we think we can offer, and he goes, you know, I gave you that talent, right? You know, I gave you the ability to earn that money. You know, I gave you the, the, uh, the people in your life that love you as much as they do. You know, I, I put all that there, right? And now you're acting like, you know, it's a big deal for you to sacrifice it back to me. This isn't how Jesus treats them. He says, hey, you guys just did a good job. You caught some fish and there's, we need some more for breakfast. Why don't you bring some of your catch? Jesus accepts our unearned offering because he's a gracious God. He could have provided the whole thing. He'd already manifested it out of nowhere, most likely. But then he welcomes our contribution. You know, just kind of on the surface, we look at things like um, the, the people that sing in our worship team and stuff. And you're like, well, I don't really have that kind of voice. I, you know, the Lord's got a whole um, uh, choir of angels that sing like Marianne or Madison or Dory or Libby or, or Doug or a lot. You guys got a lot of singers. We got a lot of great singers. And so what we do is we compare. I can't offer that. So I won't offer anything And that Jesus is on the shore saying, no, 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 you've got something to give me. Maybe not up front behind a microphone, not advertising for more worship people that are like, oh, you know, but offering it to the Lord in your car, it might set your engine light on, but you still, you offer it to the Lord and you sing your praises, right? Why? Because he'll take the little that you can offer. Or we say, well, what would he want with my financial contribution? Because there are people that can give so much or he already owns so much. And yet Jesus says, I'll take the little bit and make it a lot. It's just what he does. My act of service, if I'm going to give myself to something that the Lord's calling me to, we have a tendency to approach it much more from a standpoint of inadequacy. And yet Jesus the whole time is saying, no, I'll take it. You, trust me. I will make something beautiful out of this. Bring it. We're cooking breakfast. Your fish will count and it'll taste amazing. Just bring it. But I didn't even catch it. I didn't know. You were available to obey my command. He makes something out of very little. And then there's a, probably an even more subtler point here is that Jesus is actually adding another layer of restoration in the relationship with these men. 
He's offering them an, an unearned friendship. We've already um, uh, looked closely at all of their best attempts, led them to deny him, to abandon him, to walk out on him. And yet he's continuing to just reach out to them. Even after he's, he's come and he's met them, and I'm sure they felt restored and everything, and he's like, but I'm going to just press this a little bit further. And in particular in those ancient times, they would have seen somebody preparing a meal for you as a great um, extension of camaraderie and restoration of anything that was that was failed in the past. That's why Jesus probably didn't just say, come and let's get a fire going and let's make breakfast. I just had you catch some amazing fish. You've never tasted anything like these 153. No, he starts the meal and allows them to add to it. Why? Because he wants to extend a gesture to them. We're good. I love you. You you still have a, a plan in my, you still have a place and a purpose in my plan. This is another layer of healing for these battered and weary and, and guilty disciples. Don't we need that? Don't we need God's constant reminder that his forgiveness is true, that it's sure, and that it's reliable? And yet this is what Jesus is doing. If we're looking at this from a, from a big picture standpoint, it's really hard to miss the imagery of Jesus welcoming the laborers home after spending the entire night going through the grind, getting beaten up by the sea, feeling like there's nothing to show for it. And he says, come on, come on in and rest. Let's eat together. This is exactly what the scripture says that our life, the trajectory of our life in Christ is going is that we will meet him face to face after being worn out and spent from a life that seems utterly meaningless so many times or that we don't feel like we have a lot of results to show for it. And he says, just come in and have a meal with me. That's where all of that goes away. We leave all of that behind. It's showing us that earthly reward is no substitute for the presence or the welcoming presence of Jesus. And that that should be the thing that all of us are striving to, to experience in our life is how does he, how is he walking with me? How is he involved in every aspect of my life? How am I, am I, how am I following him and remaining that close, or retaining that close connection with him? Jesus brings direction. He brings power. He brings reward to the mundane of our lives. And he's calling us to not lose sight of the real mission, the thing that he originally equipped us for, which was to be fishers of men, to make followers of Jesus Christ. So we'll find ourselves out on the sea. We'll find ourselves fishing from time to time. But if we're not listening for where he says to drop the net, we will be fishing in vain. We might be building a life that makes us happy in the here and now. But eventually that, that, that missing sense of he's welcoming me to shore and he wants to share this meal with me will be prominent, will be present. And if life is missing these key elements, then my encouragement to you is to dive into the kingdom that Jesus has before you jump out of the endless cycle of self-living and give yourself to a greater mission. One day, and this is the, the, the praiseworthy part, is that one day you and I will be welcomed into our rest and we're going to get a pretty good meal out of it too. Even if you're not into fish, you're going to like this meal. It's just the way it's going to be. One day we're going to be welcomed back into his presence. We're going to meet him face to face. The scripture says that we will know as we are known and it will all come together. 
My encouragement to you as we go through the, the Tuesday mornings or the, the letdown after the big events and everything is to remember that the Lord is putting this all together for us to, to be in his presence face to face. That this part is the, is the temporary part. This part is the short part. And the part that will go on forever is what was taking place on that shore. And that's what we have to look forward to. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer before we sing. Lord Jesus, this morning we are we're struck, Lord, by your graciousness. We're struck, Lord, by your, your willingness to keep providing for us. Though we get in our own way, we try to provide for ourselves, we fail so often at it, Lord, and we don't even provide so often the things that bring us any real peace. We strive for the things that you never intended to fix us or to make us whole. As we keep bumping up against those idols, Lord, may we continue to hear your voice from the shore. May we continue to hear your welcoming call just to follow your instruction and to find life where you've placed it. Help us, Lord, to find our hope, our meaning, our direction. Help us, Lord, to experience the power that you've given us for life in those things, not in the things that we so often crave. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. I pray you'd bless them as they go throughout the week, looking, Lord, to make a difference for you, looking to represent your name well. Pray you bless them in that endeavor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.